Wellspring podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. Whether we know it or not, whether we live it or not, whether we accept it or not, God's people are a victorious people. That really ought to be seen, you know, in our worship and in our praise, don't you agree? As we lift up our voices from our hearts, giving Him what He is due, He is worthy. In fact, quite the opposite is true, you know, when you stop and think about it, because we are to be a victorious people, we are a victorious people in Christ, which means that we do not have to live defeated or discouraged lives, right? Don't have to do that. Aren't you glad? So uh, the opposite is true. God is, has given us the victory already because the battle has already been won, Amen. right? As we've sang about the blood of our Savior, the battle has already been won. Paul tells us in Romans 8.37, In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And then we find in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, still the Apostle Paul writing, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. All that meaning God has fought the battles. You and I get to enjoy the victories. Such a deal, right? (laughs) Such a deal. We get to enjoy the victories, and it is all because of His master plan for humankind. In Isaiah chapter, (laughs) which one are we in this morning? No. Which one? 25. 25. What I did say when we started, Isaiah, that it was going to be selected chapters, that we weren't going to do, you know, numerical in order, selected chapters. Chapter 25. In Isaiah, chapter 25, we, we find here in, these, in this 25th chapter, only 12 verses long, we, we prophetically enter into the kingdom age, okay? In other words, that time where it is just following that horrible seven-year tribulation period that we, we read about and know about from the book of Revelation, right? The kingdom age that follows that seven years. The preceding 13 chapters leading up to chapter 25 has been filled with prophetic judgment being pronounced on all of the nations in the area over there in the Middle East. I mean, Babylon and Assyria and Moab and Edom and Egypt, just to name a few, have all kind of got their own chapters given to them with regards to prophetic judgment because of their defiance and rejection of God, okay? And so that has been what has been taking place leading up to chapter 25. And then in this chapter, as I've said, with all of that heavy weighing of prophetic judgment, God gives Isaiah this beautiful, awesome, exciting vision of a distant time, a distant future. 
a time in, in most reg- in, for the most part, still in our future, okay? Now, what's exciting about this, in these 12 little verses, we find God's complete, well, mostly His, His complete master plan for us, which is pretty, pretty exciting. Now, everything that we're going to talk about today, you, you are aware of, you know about, hopefully you know about. So it's not going to be like new knowledge, but here's the deal, and here's what I want you to, to, how I want you to receive this and have your ears open to what God might want to say to your heart through His amazing Word, is that once again, we can be reminded that we have a hope that is not wishful thinking. It is a hope in the one true living God who is a promise-keeping God, right? He has laid out a plan, and nothing is going to thwart that plan. It marches on. So we can stand here, sit here this morning, encouraged and strengthened because we belong to, we serve a God who's got this plan in effect, and we are a part of it. So we can be encouraged by this, okay? So let's be reminded that God's judgment is, is not haphazard, and it is not without purpose. So when He executes judgment on earth, which He has and which He will do, He acts according to His master plan, a detailed course of action for the world. All that happens on earth, even every evil, wicked deed is weaved into a tapestry, working its way into the master plan for mankind being fulfilled by our God. And so in this chapter, Isaiah is given this look into the distant future, which gives us a glimpse into God's plan. Pretty cool, right? After the terrifying days of universal judgment, known as the Great Tribulation, Jesus Christ will then come and establish the kingdom of God here on earth, and as most of you are familiar with, will be then in a new Jerusalem, in a new earth, on a new earth, right? How exciting. From the beginning of creation, actually, God's purpose has always been to bring His kingdom to earth as we're going to know and experience someday in the future. And we are given an outline, if you will, of a seven-step master plan, all right here in these 12 verses in chapter 25. This is, this is God's plan for the whole world for His people. All right, so first of all, look at verse 1, because it's going to show us what we'll refer to as step number one in God's plan. God's plan is to establish personal relationship with His people. How many are thankful that He he cared about you enough, (laughs) that He loves you so much that He wants to have relationship with you? I mean, that in itself is so powerful, isn't it? And it's not a word I use very often, but it's just precious. (laughs) It really is. He wants to have relationship with you. Well, some of us, more than we would like to admit, spend so much time not engaging and enjoying that relationship, it hasn't detoured His loving, longing desire to be in relationship with us 
part of his plan. Look at verse 1. Lord, you are my neighbor's God. Oh, that's not what it says, is it? You are my God. Relationship talk. You, You are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name for in perfect faithfulness you have done wonderful things. Things planned. There's that word planned long ago. Okay? Wow. Isaiah celebrates God's victory. Because, you know, he's been talking about for the last 13 chapters, really since the beginning of the book, God's bringing judgment upon the earth because of God's reject, people's rejection of him. And so he speaks of victory over God's enemies here as if it has already taken place. Now, in some degree, it, you know, all of this, is, is, some of it has already taken place, some of it still in our future. But please keep in mind, at this point, it is all in Isaiah's future, okay? So he's talking as if the enemies have already been defeated. God is a refuge for his, for his needy people in any age, in any time period, in any generation. So regardless of the, the, the demands of the present or the uncertainty of the future, the godly find themselves longing and desiring to hold tightly to their God. Are you holding tight this morning to your God in this relationship that He has done so much for us to be able to have? Amen? And so in in addressing the Lord, Isaiah says, You are my God. He acknowledges the Lord in, in a very personal way, that a personal relationship exists between Him and the Lord. And please understand that when he does that, I know it sounds like this is Isaiah talking about Isaiah, but it's not limited to Isaiah. This is including all of us, okay? Isaiah here is representing mankind, representing you, and he's representing me in this, in this personal relation that it actually does exist. A personal relationship is always, folks, the first thing that God is after in seeking people. Okay, In response to the prophecies of the ultimate victory of God over his adversaries, Isaiah declares that God is faithful to his purpose. By crushing the forces of evil, God had worked wonders, Isaiah says. He had demonstrated his faithfulness by fulfilling his promises. Don't you love the wording here? Perfect faithfulness. Wow. Whatever the Lord had planned or promised, He had always done and will always do. The point to notice is this. God's plan for establishing a personal relationship with His people is pictured and fulfilled in Isaiah and all other believers Believers are just what their name suggests. Believers, right? Believers in who God is and who He says He is. Believing in what He says He will do. He's got a good track record, don't you think? 
I mean, where can we find any place where what he said he would do, he has not done? Right? And so we can be encouraged by that because that will continue to be true. Nothing about that is going to change. Believers, just what their name suggests, they are people who truly believe in the Lord and address him just like Isaiah does, my God. You feel the personalness of that. Just as Isaiah praised God's faithfulness, so we too can praise Him. For the Lord is faithful and He will fulfill His word. All His promises to all His his people. Note that the I will exalt here is not just Isaiah. Once again, I want you to see you in that. Okay? I will exalt. We will exalt. You will exalt. It represents all God's redeemed. Especially those who are going to be around during that final apocalyptic scene. Right? It takes them in as well. Second, God's plan is to establish true worship among all people. Look at verse 2 and 3. He says, You have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigner's stronghold a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong people will honor you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. God's plan for the world includes a wonderful event, a day when all the Gentile nations, of course, not when it says all the Gentile nations will be saved, not Everybody in every nation, some in every nation, okay, represented there. Since the first coming of Christ, people from all over the world have been turning to Him to be their Lord and Savior, correct? All around the world, even now as we speak, somebody, somewhere is coming to Jesus Christ. But when Christ does return to set up his kingdom on earth, many from every nation in the world will turn to him and worship him and him alone, which is pretty huge when you stop and think about it because we live in a world that is all about idolatry still, don't we? God is the dollar, self is the dollar, pleasure is the, the idol. What, am I, what was I saying? Anyway, you know what I'm saying, right? The dollar. The dollar is the God. Yeah, okay. However, before that takes place, a terrifying judgment will come and fall on all of the wicked, all of the evil, all of those who have rejected God. It is going to come. As these verses tell us, God will destroy all the cities of the foreigners, Gentiles because of their unbelief, wickedness and defiance in him. The term the city here is basically a generic term referring to all of the cities of the world. I think about that and I, and I think about the, the big main power cities in the world today. You can, you can think of some of them, you know, where the New York Stock Exchange is and, and the, you know, China or New York or L.A. or Chicago. Sorry, Megan. <laughs> Just, it just came to my mind. <laughs> Big power cities right throughout the world 
where people go to and will look to for strongholds and fortresses, for safety, every single one of them coming down because there will be no safety for the wicked in that sense. The, the same spirit of rebellion that existed even in ancient times against the only living and true God continues to march on. It's here now, isn't it? And so as a result, the day is coming when they will be destroyed, the, these fortresses of defiance. I don't know what you have thought of, but that is a biblical heaven perspective on some of these cities that have been built in defiance against God. In other words, you know, it, it being and representing man and all that man can do and achieve in defiance of God will be destroyed. These fortresses, these centers of man celebrating man will come down and become, as Isaiah writes, a heap of rubble never to be rebuilt. Throughout history, again and again, God turned such cities, such as Babylon, into complete rubble. I mentioned Babylon because it is an ancient city. It was at one time the power city of the world, the known world at the time. You want to know where Babylon is today? It doesn't exist. <laughs> when God destroyed it, he destroyed it. You can go there now, and all you're going to find is desert and dust. It is no longer there. Some of you might remember Saddam Hussein had this plan to rebuild Babylon. We saw how that worked out for him, didn't we? Yeah. So throughout history, again and again, we find God doing that. And at the final judgment, all people, saved and unsaved, will stand in awe of what God has done. Some from a redeemed, believing heart, others from an unbelieving heart, but then at that point recognizing they had been wrong. They had made a big mistake in rejecting the one true living God. But at that point, everybody does what Paul tells us in Philippians 2.11. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Thirdly, God's plan is to protect his people. To be a refuge and a shelter for them. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me. And then just notice those key words, refuge and shelter and shade. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall. And like the heat of the desert, you silence the uproar of foreigners. As heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is stilled. In other words, their boastful shouts of victory over the God's people will be silence. That gets reversed and it becomes God's people lifting humble shouts of praise and worship and glory and honor to our king. Wow. 
So while all that's going on, meanwhile, the Lord remains a defense and a refuge for his people. Has he been that to you in your life? Your refuge, your shelter, your shade? Concern for the oppressed has always filled God's heart. Always. His plan for the world includes the protection of his people. God has been a refuge. He has been a shelter for all who will call upon him for help. For all those who will humble themselves and say, I need you, God. I cry out to you. The powerful of this world have always oppressed God's people as well as the poor and the needy and the down and out. Isaiah likened the stormy rage off a, you know, as, as, as rain <laughs> bouncing off a solid wall. Try to picture that. And like the shadow of a cloud which brings relief on a hot, hot day. So God would deliver his people from the oppressive heat of persecution. Maybe some of you are thinking what I'm thinking right now. It just I didn't even mention this last night. It just popped in my head right now. I'm thinking of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. Amen? Amen. Thrown into a fiery furnace. I could just picture them walking around with that fourth person. <laughs> Woo! Yeah. Where's my coat? <laughs> it's a little cool in here. <laughs> God's protection. He, he's the cool of the day. He's the shade that we, re, that we need in times when the heat is on, the pressure is, is coming at us, and we look to him. He's our refuge, our shelter, our shade. Wow. God will deliver his people from the oppressive heat of persecution. God is planning a final Victorious day of deliverance for all the persecuted of this earth that is coming. This is what I believe to be what Revelation 16 verse 9 is talking about. They were seared by the intense heat and they cursed the name of God, the wicked, the evil. They cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify Him. That's in a bad place, isn't it? It's not where you want to be. Before that day comes, however, the Lord will strengthen and empower His people to endure the oppression. Historically, believers have fled to the Lord as a refuge and a shelter from such tyranny persecution and abuse, and the Lord has strengthened them. They were able to walk through the sufferings of the storm and the burning heat of persecution. Hear me now, no matter the outcome, because we know that even today, people are losing their lives left and right because of their faith in Jesus Christ. So we might be thinking, we might have friends who will say to us, where's their God? Oh, he's right there. Getting them through, even though it might mean they get to go be in his presence 
as if that was a bad thing. Right? So no matter the outcome, they stood victorious in God. And no enemy, church, please hear this. No enemy can take that from us. Yeah. I think of Stephen in chapters, Acts chapter 7. He's the first Christian martyr in church history. And he's got guys who are really mad at him. They're, they're, you know, they're snarling at him. They're picking up stones. And you got to know they're not kind of doing this, <laughs> you know, just sort of lobbying them. No, they are giving them, throwing at him their fastest fastball that they can come up with. And as the stones are hitting him, as his flesh is being broken open, as blood is flowing, he says, Father, forgive him. And the heavens are open. And he sees Jesus at the throne. Yes, dear church, God gets us through. He gets us through. I read a story just the other day of um, that, a story that took place in Uganda. A bishop there had had three men in his area. He referred to it as his diocese. Um, had committed some crime, and, and they, were, they were sentenced to, to the, uh, a firing squad. They were going to be shot to death for their crime. The bishop is concerned about these three guys and their eternal well-being, so he plans to go see them. Now, this is crazy. In Uganda, what took place is there were people who were commanded by the government to come to a stadium and watch the shooting. Imagine that. So there's like 3,000 people in this stadium, and the bishop walks out to see these guys, and he's thinking and praying, God, what do I tell three guys who are about to be shot, dead? And he's thinking and praying, and he, as he's approaching, one of the guys turns around, sees the bishop coming, and with a great big smile says, oh, bishop, I'm so glad you're here, because I wanted to tell you that when I got locked up because of my crime, I gave my life to Jesus Christ, and now I know my sins are forgiven. Heaven has been opened. Yeah. And he's saying this with joy yeah. in his heart being expressed on his face. The other two had similar situations. And as the bishop, he said, man, I hear was trying to figure out what to say, and they, they were encouraging me. Yeah. These three guys turned around, handcuffs on their wrists, started waving to the crowd. The command was given. The shots were fired. And three guys... We're in the presence of Jesus. God gets us through. We can trust Him. The day is coming when the Messiah will establish His kingdom on earth. And in that day, the perfect refuge, the perfect shelter, the perfect shade of God's presence will be continued unbroken, and experienced by every follower of Jesus Christ. God cares for His own. In times of trial and judgment, the Bible is filled with examples of that. Through the centuries, He has kept the church in spite of the attacks that the enemy has thrown at it. And, it will and He will continue to deliver His church from the wrath to come, which is still out in our future. 
Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 1, verse 10 of 1 Thessalonians, And we are to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, who rescues us from the coming wrath. That's pretty good promises, wouldn't you agree? The Lord is our hiding place from the stormy, fiery trials of this world. He is and will continue to be our refuge and our shelter and our shade in times of heated persecution, trial, adversity, and trouble. Let's look to Him. Amen. Fourthly, God's plan is to provide a feast in the future for all of His people. What might that be referring to? Look at verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. For the Old Testament Jewish person, a feast was always a picture of the kingdom age. Always it was. For those of you who are familiar with the festivals of the Lord found in the Old Testament, every single one of them pointing to Jesus Christ, every single one of them pointing to a distant time, a distant future, the kingdom age, okay? Eternity, in other words. Every Jew knew that. And so when they hear Isaiah talking this kind of talk, they know what is being talked about. Isaiah would enter into Israel, in other words, would enter into their glory in that age to come. And the Gentiles would come to Zion in that age to come. The mountain here is a reference to Mount Zion where Jerusalem sits today to worship the Lord. Try to picture that. When Jesus used the image of the feast in Matthew 8, 11, and also we find it in Luke 13, 29, which tells us people will come, this is Jesus speaking, people will come from east and west, north and south, and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus refers to what Isaiah has been given a vision of. The people knew, again, they knew right then and there that he was speaking about the promised kingdom. This future feast this that we're talking about in verse 6 is, is the wedding feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's what's being talked about. Wow. The wedding supper of the Lamb. When Christ sets up his kingdom on earth, he will hold this great banquet for all believers from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And I can't help but think, church, I just cannot help but think the scene found in Matthew 26, 29. It's what we call the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, right? And he's gathered his guys together, he's given them some, you know, Beginning, he's been preparing them. It's, this is the, the night before kind of thing. He's talking to them, encouraging them. 
comforting them. And then he says in verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day. <laughs> Woo! When I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. This causes me to want to jump over to Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come (laughs) and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, were given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Don't doubt them. They're true. Spoken by our God, in other words. Every single one of us at some point in time, often, multiple times, have received in the mail a wedding invite, right? And you get that invitation and you look at that and you look at your calendar and do I even like these people? (laughs) No. (laughs) And then you typically in a wedding invitation, the reason it's come out is because they want to know if you're coming or not. And so what do we do? We, most of them anymore have little boxes you can check Yes, I will attend with this many. We've been given the invite to the biggest wedding this world has ever seen. What are you doing with that invite these days? Because that invite, really, your response and your answer to that is lived out day after day in your life. You remember how last week we talked about Saying yes? Or here again we find that. Our yes is to be a daily, 24-7, 365 yes to our Lord. It's yes to that invitation. That invitation is saying, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for going to the cross and taking on my sins and dying in my place. Yes. I will live my life in a way that says, thank you. And I will live my life in a way that says, I'm going to make you known. And I want others to know about the love that I have received, the forgiveness that is mine, the eternal life that I get to look forward to, to the wedding banquet that I have been invited to. Live our lives in that way. This prophecy of this great supper has a strong personal message for people everywhere. People are saved by trusting Jesus Christ, right? But tragically, there's going to be those who will reject that invitation and who will be lost no matter what their excuse is. 
Fifthly, God's plan is to conquer death. It is to swallow it up forever. One of mankind's biggest enemies has always been death. Verse 7 and 8. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the people's disgrace from all the earth. And then it, my Bible has it off to the side over here. The Lord has spoken. Take it to the bank. In other words, you can count on it. On this mountain, once again referring to Zion, he will destroy, he will even swallow up forever death. For the God-rejecting nations, death has, will take its final hopeless turn. But for the redeemed... For those who have put their trust in God, death gets reversed because it is no more, because it's been swallowed up, and now we've got eternal life. The sovereign Lord says through Isaiah that he will wipe away the tears from all faces. The biggest, worst funeral the world has ever, ever experienced is going to happen. But like I said a moment ago, the biggest, greatest wedding that the world has ever experienced will also happen. Verse 8 was quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 54, which says, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Hang in there. Endure. Don't quit. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It was also quoted by the Apostle John. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 17, also by John in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. Those ones you're more familiar with. I say them here often. There'll be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more death. In this prophecy, the Lord gave Isaiah a vision of what lay ahead in the distant future. Death would be conquered. The very shadow of death would be removed forever. The day is coming, folks. We have got something to look forward to. The day is coming when all tears of sorrow, all grief will be wiped away, will no longer exist. All of the mockery, all of the persecution, all of the disgrace caused by the enemies of God and His people will be removed, gone, vanished, and they will suffer no more. The they meaning God's people. Note the guarantee to this promise. The sovereign one says here, and the Lord has spoken. Beyond any question, death will be conquered. And although it is not mentioned in this scripture here specifically, I believe we all would see and agree it is 
definitely pointing to Jesus conquering death on the cross and then robbing the grave. Amen. Because of that, we have life for eternity. Six, God's plan is to arouse people to trust and to rejoice in his salvation. Look at verse 9 now. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Once again, may I say, God fights the battles. We get to enjoy the victories. Seated at the great banquet table, all the saints of all ages from all nations would realize that their patience and their long-suffering and their endurance is paid off. It's being rewarded. They will rejoice and be glad in His salvation. God's plan for the world includes stirring people up to trust and to rejoice in His salvation. My prayer, even in this, at this point, would be that we would not ever dare take what has been provided for us by our Lord and Savior for granted. Amen. When Jesus Christ returns to set up his kingdom on earth, the Jewish people and many others will trust him as their Savior. The blindness of their hearts will be removed. They will see Christ and realize that he is the true Messiah, the Savior of the world. And as a result, they will turn to him also in that day, all persecuted believers will see the Lord and know that it has been worth it all. Think about that. In that day, they will break out into powerful, worshipful song of thanksgiving and praise. Since we have the victory... You do, don't you? <laughs> God's people ought to be a rejoicing people. Would you agree? Yeah. Seventh, God's plan to defeat all enemies, to assure his people of victorious lives. Verses 10 through 12. The hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. But Moab will be trampled in their land as straw is trampled down in manure. They will stretch out their hands in it as swimmers stretch out their hands to swim. God will bring down their pride despite the cleverness of their hands. He will bring down your high fortified walls and lay them low. He will bring them down to the ground, to the very dust. The imagery here, I think you would agree, is quite graphic. God's plan for the world ensures the defeat of all enemies who stand opposed to him and to his people. Moab, here in verse 10, like the cities earlier in the passage, refers to 
all nations, not just Moab only. It is a reference referring to all the nations of the world. That's what it represents. In that day when the Lord returns to the earth, set up his kingdom, while the people of God are rejoicing on Mount Zion, God's hand will fall upon all who have denied and defied him. His enemies will be nothing more than worthless straw to be trampled under foot. Isaiah declared that they would be like crushed straw. And the idea here in the Hebrew is crushed straw left to rot in manure pits. All God's enemies will be like swimmers seeking to escape the cesspool, the manure cesspool. I know you don't even want to try to imagine that. I don't. <laughs> Yuck, right? But that's what he is saying here. They will try their very best to swim even in this yucky cesspool of manure, but unsuccessfully because there will be no escape. They think they've been clever. They think they can outsmart God, outdo God, and maybe they had thought that up until this point. They are now finding out no such thing. It will all catch up to them. No one escapes. God will destroy, it says, their pride and the evil works of their hands, their schemes, their, their ingenuity, their, you know, all that man stuff. Standing before God, all the proud people of earth, along with the fortresses, cities, and which they had put their trust in will come down like the walls of Jericho, crashing down. Once all the enemies of God, this is powerful, folks. It's simple, but yet so powerful. All the enemies of God have been destroyed. At this point, there, were no, there will no longer be forever and ever and ever any opposition to the people of God. Can you say hallelujah to that? Ultimately, God's people, victorious throughout all eternity. It was Dwight Eisenhower who once said, there are no victories at discount prices. I like that, don't you? The victory that is ours was not cheap. But it is ours to live, it is ours to experience, and it is for free. The price has been paid. All that is required, though, for us to have victory is faith in His person, in His plans, in His purposes, and in His power. As Paul says, we now see through a glass darkly, 1 Corinthians 13, but when we see Jesus face to face, wow, we'll say, oh, how we have waited for him, how we have waited for you, and here you are, and here he is, and then this is my God. As we join with Isaiah, my God, my God, my God. So don't give up, dear saints. 
Don't live for this planet because it's not going to last. Keep your hearts and your minds on things above because I think we are almost there. Hallelujah and amen. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your goodness, for your faithfulness. We thank you that you love us and are for us. We thank you that you have fought the battles and you continue to fight the battles and we get to enjoy the victories. Now, this doesn't mean that we just take a seat on the sofa and, and do nothing. No, it requires, it requires effort on our part. And we've talked about that already a little bit in times past and even in this message this morning. It requires faith. It requires our doing our part in our serving and our living in our saying yes to you on a daily basis. When the opportunities cross our path, we will say yes to you, Lord, and make you known and shine your light and display you. And then, God, we will be, hopefully we've been reminded this morning that when it's all said and done, no matter what we have dealt with, no matter the adversity, the hardship, the pain, and while we in America don't know anything about persecution, it could be coming. In spite of all of that, we will stand in your presence when we see you face to face and say it has been worth it all. Give us that resolve, God, and may we live from you in that place on a daily basis. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I will lift up